Hello, this is Steve Robinson, and we're here with another podcast from CD Records. And this podcast is about an album called Sephardic Journey, and the catalog number is uh, 163 from CD Records. And, of course, you can find all of CD's catalog at cdrecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E. Sephardic Journey is an album featuring the Cavatina duo, and we'd like to welcome the two members to our studio and this podcast today, Alhenya and Dennis. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the Cavatina Duo. How was it founded and, and where did the name come from? How was it founded? We first met and were friends before we became colleagues as musicians. And the name, it's interesting because I remember we were in Bloomington, Indiana at the time, and we were just recording our first CD. And I didn't want to have just our names on the cover of the CD. I wanted to have a name for the duo. And uh, we were looking at this uh, book of musical forms. And I went through all the names and I look at Cavatina and Cavatina means short melody. And it was used in the 19th century by opera composers as well as Beethoven. He used this in some of his string quartets. And it just made complete sense, a short, beautiful melody. And I said, ah, that's our name, Cavatina. And that's how it came. Now, we should mention that you became friends and then colleagues, but it didn't stop there. No. We are more than that. We are married. <laughs> now, the title of the album is Sephardic Journey, but before we get into the inspiration for the album, let's talk first about Sephardic music. What uh-huh. actually is Sephardic music? It's a music that Sephardic Jews have carried with them since they were expelled from Spain at the end of the 15th century. And as one of the composers on, on this uh, album, Alan Thomas, he's a uh, stating in his program notes, you cannot really draw a distinction between what is this, uh, after so many centuries, this is the music that has kept its original from when it was firstly composed or sang or, or written, or is it a music that has gone through so many changes by being mixed with uh, influences of people and cultures, whatever these Sephardic Jews have settled throughout all these past five centuries. So there's a big mix. And I remember, for example, for our uh, one of the previous projects for City Records called the Balkan Project, I remember that one of the melodies that we chose to use as an inspiration for arrangement, and it's a song that I sang in Bosnia, Kadja Pojona Bembashu, it's called the song, and later on discovering that it's also a Sephardic melody. And also many of the songs that we sang in our country later on through my teachings at Roosevelt University, for example, my student from Bulgaria would tell me, oh, that's our song from Bulgaria. Somebody from Turkey would say, no, no, that's our song from Turkey. So there are many countries in in that region that have sort of like appropriated those songs and, and as their songs, but they are not. So obviously there's this traveling element that's in the music. So let's rewind a little bit. A Sephardic Jew was a Jew living in Spain in the 15th century and before. Yes, Sephardat means Spain in Ladino. And you referred to the original form, which has been transformed through the centuries in different countries. Well, what was the original form? Most of these melodies were songs. And what we know and we still keep today are the, the, the lyrics. The lyrics are there, but they have been changed, as Dennis was saying, through the different countries that the diaspora has brought to the Sephardic Jews. So if they would go to countries like, let's say, Malta or other countries in the northern African continent, uh, they would have influence from each of them. Or if they would go to Turkey or to uh, Balkans or even up in North Europe, like in Poland, we have even uh, Sephardic Jews there in other parts of Europe. So they would have that influence. So what we do keep are the lyrics and the melodies that have been kept from generation to generation, but of course they change through generations. So the background of this album is your own backgrounds and your own interest in Sephardic music. Mm -hmm. That's correct. It's more than interest. Turns out there's some family history there, right? More than just interest in music itself, there was a few elements that have brought us to create this album. Firstly, one of our friends, and I would call him even our mentor, Sergio Assad, at one point was telling us many years ago, you guys need to explore your roots and dig into that and try to get the music out of there. So that's how the Balkan project came along. And, and then when Eugenia started thinking about Spain, she wanted to go much further than the 19th century 
music that's already familiar. And other things that have happened is that in 1996, after the war in former Yugoslavia finished, when Eugenia and I visited my country, actually my new country at the time, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and we visited our relatives. One of my relatives, my great aunt, spoke to Eugenia in Spanish. And Eugenia came to me and said, she's talking to me in really old Spanish. There are very old words that she's using. I think she's using Ladino. And little by little, we discovered that she's a descendant from the Sephardic Jews. And her mother converted from Judaism to Islam in the Second World War in order to survive, not to be persecuted by the Nazis. So my great aunt, whom I knew by name of uh, Razia Prcic, which is a name very, very uh, associated in my hometown of Tuzla with an Islamic background, her actual name before she converted was Mazal Matilda. One of the things that my great aunt told Eugenia after meeting her, she said, with you now the circle is complete, meaning that she met a person from Spain who is now part of the family. And it makes me think how the circle comes around musically as well, because often I've heard that flamenco music from Spain comes originally all the way from India that has been carried through these migrations and the Arab influence in Spain over seven centuries. And I'm sure that that influence there has also shaped the music of those Sephardic Jews who then traveled to the Balkans, back all the way to Middle East and further. So at the end, who knows where something starts and travels halfway or world around, comes back to his point of origin. Eugenia also discovered that her last names are of Sephardic origins. So those are a few elements that came together. And then further on, looking for that music, listening, playing, discovering, it's a beautiful material to draw from. And on top of it, I just feel that it's like a final layer to all of it. It's simply a tribute to the persistence of human spirit that carries the culture, that carries their own identity, no matter how much they are prosecuted or how much do they travel. They carry something with them. And it's just astonishing that after so many centuries that it's still here with us. And then it happens to be in our background. So it's really amazing. So it's clear where the inspiration for the album came, and it's very meaningful to you. But the voice you heard just a moment ago, a fourth voice, was the producer of the album and the president of Sadie Records, Jim Ginsburg. So, Jim, what attracted you to this project? A couple of things. I love an album with a good story behind it, (laughs) and this certainly has that. But more importantly was just the nature of the music and the inspiration. And this does feel to me... Similar to the previous CD album, The Balkan Project, where it was the same idea, taking music with a certain root to it and then exploring all the different ways that music has come about and then what modern composers could do with that music. And what makes this album so special beyond the inspiration is there are five really wonderful composers, four of which were commissioned to write pieces based on these Sephardic melodies. And then one actually made a gift to the duo. I should note the way this came about, the four commissions were actually done through Sadie Records. Sadie Records is a not-for-profit label. So these, do you want to talk about how you reached out to the composers? Yeah, these are people, most of them we have worked with. And this was such an interesting year when all this happened. First, I had this in my mind to want to do a project like this, and, and I approached you first, and I told you, I want to do this project. I don't know yet how am I going to do it, but would you be interested? And you immediately had this spark in your eyes, and I said, oh, I think he's into it. But then I had to work to be able to commission the pieces from the composers and to get the economical support I needed. So by chance, we were playing here in Chicago with a soprano. We got called to do a little cycle of songs that included some Sephardic songs. And after we finished the concert, I'm talking to this lady who is from Oregon, who is a Sephardic Jew. And I'm talking to her, explaining her what I want to do. I would like to commission these pieces based on Sephardic music, but I need to raise funds. And then somebody is listening to this conversation and immediately he offers money. And this is how everything started. Then suddenly somebody else is also offering money. So we did ask for grants. Unfortunately, we didn't get them, but we got these donors. And we suddenly find ourselves with enough money to commission music from these four composers. We wanted to do something bigger than in the Balkan project. We wanted to do longer pieces, so the fee should be significantly higher. And we wanted also to include the strings. 
so that it would be a much more substantial chamber music piece. So we commissioned music to people we worked with before, like Clarissa Sat. She did one of the sextets with a string quartet and flute and guitar. David Leisner, he also did one of the sextets. Then uh, Alan Tomas did one of the trios with uh, cello, flute and guitar. And Carlos Rafael Rivera did the other trio, which is mainly with alto flute, violin and guitar. Also includes a little bit of C flute. Then that same year, we got an invitation to play for the Austin Chamber Music Society together with the Austin Guitar Society. And they commissioned every year a piece to be premiered at that concert. And they asked us, we are going to commission a piece for you to premiere. Is there something you would like us to ask the composer? Do you want to talk to the composer something specific? And we said, yes, we want him to write something based on Sephardic music. And that's how Isabel came about. So it was just like incredible. From the beginning, everything felt together like it was going to happen. I think we should name those wonderful commissioners. Yes, I forgot to mention the names of the most important people. Tom Barron is the main donor, and he has been behind us since a long time ago. He's one of our dear friends and a good fan of ours. He comes to every concert we play. He's not the person who overheard the discussion? He did. Oh, he's the no, one. He's, he's the, one. the one. And he's that's how one. you discovered him? No, he already huh. was our friend. He would come to our concerts, but he was listening. He wanted to greet us after the concert, and he was listening to me to talk. He says... I'm going to help you. Then the second person is Mark Cabellines, who is a very good friend of ours. He's our neighbor in River Forest. I know him since a long time ago. He used to play the flute. He's a hand surgeon, but he used to play the flute, and he lent me his alto flute for many years. So he was also involved with music, and he wanted to give this gift, especially after his son passed away. And we use one of his son's poems to be an inspiration as well, together with one of the melodies that we use. Which piece is that? David Leisner. Love Dreams of the Exile. That piece is a tribute to Michael Cavallinas, young man who Hernia just explained about. You asked composers, how did we choose them? Some we've worked with before. They were involved with the Balkan project, but they were also vetted by Jim, who has a lot to say when it comes to recording the pieces. And I find it more and more interesting to have this sort of collaborative process where we talk and we discuss what shall we do, who are we going to get involved, at, at, etc. So it's really fun to work like that. I appreciate that, and I appreciate being brought into the process and having a chance to weigh in. Of course, all five composers here are wonderful. One more person I need to name here who wasn't underwriting the fees for the composer but has a tremendous impact on the budget for the whole project because not everything is done once the CD is done and released, but there's promotional costs involved. So besides raising money on Kickstarter for such expenses, we also had Howard Rossman contribute quite generously to these efforts of promoting Sephardic Journey. And this is on top of the regular promotional effort that Sadie Records does with its full-time publicist, Nat Silverman, and our regular advertising schedule on albums. So this is really wonderful to have this extra promotional ability. I should also note about the commission. So once Tom and Mark had expressed interest in these pieces, they were able to come to Sadie Records, which is a not-for-profit, and commission the works through us, which gives them a tax deduction, in return for which Sadie Records gets the right to make the first recording. Let's jump into the music and talk about the first piece, the piece by Alan Thomas, who was born in 1967. Tell us a bit about this piece, and then we'll hear an excerpt. This is a 304 flute guitar and cello. And as all the pieces, they all are drawing the inspiration from the melodies for the songs or dances of the Sephardic Jews. And what draws us to Alan is his ability to surprise us every time with the very different textures or things. In a certain way, you know what to expect from him, but in another way, he just comes in with something that completely takes you away. One of the things I appreciate the most from him is the sense of form, how he structures the piece. And uh, when I say about surprise, for example, the second movement, he uses the alto food. The title of the second movement is the aire de una mujer, which means the scent of the woman. And as he explains in the program notes, he says, I remember the movie with Al Pacino, The Scent of the Woman, when he is dancing this tango. So he made out of this melody, he used it and made a little milonga for this second movement. So that was the, the surprise. It's very sensual sounding music. <laughs> 
Do you want to explain milonga? Milonga is a type of a tango. It's a slow. Argentinian form, and it's a slower tango, and it's in a 4-4, four, four, but it's divided into groups of 3-3-2-8. Three, three, so one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So that's where it comes from. So he's mixing. This is the great thing, you know, the mixture of so many influences and ideas that composers get in their head, and, and they link things from you would never expect. So that's really cool.
We've just heard the second movement from the Trio Sephardi for flute, cello, and guitar by Alan Thomas, performed for us by Eugenia Molinaire, Dennis Azabagage, and joined by David Cunliffe, cello. We should mention that David is a member of the Lincoln Trio, which has recorded uh, more than once for CD Records. And we're listening to a program featuring an album on CD called Sephardic Journey and the Cavatino Duo. And we're joined by Dennis and Eugenia. Next, we're going to talk about the second composition on this CD. We should mention that these compositions are being given their world premieres, and four of the compositions were commissioned by the Cavatino Duo and Sadie Records. So this is by Joseph V. Williams the second. Yes. Tell us about Joe. As I mentioned before, we were invited to play for the Austin Chamber Music Society in cooperation with the Austin Guitar Society. They do concerts in the summer together. They invite chamber music with guitar. And in 2014, they told us, we have a composer in residence. He's going to write a piece for you. That was two months before the concert. And we said, really? We want him to write something based on Sephardic music. Is that possible? And they said, yeah, you talk to him and you'll arrange. And when we explained him the idea, he was very open and eager to do it. And that's how Isabel came about. Isabel tells the story of a Sephardic woman in Spain who had to convert because otherwise she would have been killed. But once she converted, she was never happy with the conversion. She kept doing her traditional Jewish rituals. She was discovered and they told her, of course, to convert completely or to leave or she would be killed. And she decided she'd rather die than change. So she was unfortunately burned. It's a long historical story. There were many songs and melodies written about her life, and this is one of them. And the burning is very graphically depicted in the music, right? Yes, it is, because you can hear the flute doing some voice together on top of the sound, screams, and the composer was very, very picky about that. He told me, you have to scream through the flute to express her pain, not only physical, but also her spiritual pain. Thank you. 
And that was an excerpt from the composition called Isabel by Joseph V. Williams II. And it's part of an album called Sephardic Journey, featuring the Cavatina duo, Ohanya Molinaire, flute, and Dennis as a baggage guitar. What was the recording session like for that one? We recorded Isabel, the last of all the pieces. We were very happy that the project was finishing and we were able to play very comfortable and very good. We recorded here in WFMT and it was like this is the end and we felt really excited playing the piece. We felt really good. Was there also a certain sense of freedom for doing the one piece where you didn't have to collaborate with anyone else? I don't think there was so much sense of a freedom. When you collaborate with other musicians, there are other aspects that are open to you as a player, as a performer, as a musician. You get to discover what else to listen for, what else to tune to, not in tune in terms of pitch, but in tune of feelings or musically speaking. And collaborations are always good. They always make you learn something new. So in a sense, that also brings more freedom to you, more freedom to expand. When we do together, just as a duo, you have to pay less attention to other people, perhaps, and in that sense, it's maybe logistically easier. But musically, it's not. Your senses are attuned to music, no matter whether it is a solo recording or any other format. What brings a freedom, Jim, is to have a great producer in the booth. You're too kind. <laughs> no, I'm not. I remember some recordings many years ago, solo, and I would have to go back and forth between playing and then listening back. So when you can rely on somebody who can tell you, you have to pay attention to this, it went good or not, you know, you just have a help and your focus is more in playing than in observing what you're actually doing, whether it came good or not. I think it also helps to have a great recording engineer, Bill Malone, who is also engineering this podcast, was the engineer for this recording. You know, when you talk about liberty, it comes to the point that when we record with Bill, we get into the studio and we are like, let's take one hour for a sound check and it takes five minutes. You know, He already <laughs> knows with experience he has where and how and when. So you come in and you say, eh, well, maybe we can try this. Boom, that's it. So literally, it was just, I think, one, one adjustment we had and that was it. Well, let's turn to the third composition, also a commission, on this album, Sephardic Journey, featuring the Cavatina duo. It's by Carlos Rafael Rivera. Ohanya, tell us about this one. Carlos Rivera is a really interesting musician. He does not only compose music for classical format, but he does also film scoring as well as rock music. So he's really very interesting in so many ways. So Carlos got to do one of the trios. It's called Plegaria y Canto. Plegaria is praying, a little introduction, and canto is song. This trio is originally for alto flute, violin, and guitar, although he does use a little bit of the C flute more into the middle of the piece. I asked him to work with the alto flute because we always feel that the alto flute melts very well with the guitar, doesn't compete with it, and because the violin has already a very high register, so the alto flute just makes that color really nicely. He uses two songs on this piece. They are called Ven Querida, Come My Love, and La Tuya Gracia y Hermosura, Your Grace and Beauty. In his program notes, he's explaining that he also imagined while composing this piece that there is this young woman running to the beach of Burriana, and Burriana is the city where I was born. And I don't know where he came from with that because I never talked to him about where I come from or anything. He knows I'm from Valencia. He discovered that I'm from a town called Burriana inside of the province of Valencia and that we are next to the coast, like one mile. And he had this vision of a woman running towards the sea, desperate, not wanting to convert and wanted to stay with her traditions and her culture. And it was really touching for me because that's where I grew up. And, and reading that in the program notes, he never talked to me about that. It was very interesting. So playing this piece was very deep for me, all of them. But this one was very, very special. So I have something more special with this piece than with any other. The use of the alto flute, a couple of things that I find interesting and I think a little unusual. One, he has you playing forte and fortissimo often, and he has you playing in what is, for the alto flute, the upper register. How did that compare to your usual use of the instrument and what were the challenges? Yeah, that was pretty challenging because to tune with a violin in such a high register, having very often unisons, octave unisons, and thirds or fifths, it's not easy at all. And it was challenging. I have never heard the alto flute being treated that way. But it really works. I was completely convinced that he was trying to put me to the limit. But 
I like his challenges and the results, I think they sound very good. I was pleased with it. Also about this piece, it's the only piece that's really a long extended form. All the other pieces, there's one short piece and the others are broken into movements ranging from three to seven minutes in length. This piece, of course, is 15 minutes. How did that affect your approach, if at all? As I mentioned in the beginning, he calls the piece Plegaria y Canto. There's also a subtitle, right? Yeah. Plegaria y Canto. Al Bodre de la Mar. Al Bodre de la Mar, which means on the edge of the sea. He has this introduction. You are talking about form. So he does not have a clear first movement and second movement. But the Plegaria is like the introduction. You could call that the opening in the first part of the piece. And the Canto, which is much longer in its kind of the development of the piece is the second part. So what is a little challenging is in the middle of the piece, almost in the middle, he makes me switch to the C flute and then go back immediately to the alto flute and there is no pause. I just have to leave the flute, take the other one and play immediately. There is a little difficulty in terms of tuning and changing the embouchure so quickly, but once you're getting used to work like that, it's possible, but his music is always challenging. Rhythmically, was challenging to put together, but I think it works. It's just very interesting, even if it is a long piece. I would like to jump in onto this thing of form. I just want to quote Carlos from his program notes. He says, throughout the writing process, I had a recurring vision of a proud yet helpless soul at the edge of the coastal town of Boriana in eastern Spain, singing her plight to the sea. She gains solace as her song is joined, perhaps by the sea herself. It is a story wrought with sadness, but also hope, a perfect metaphor for the troubled yet inspiring journey of the Sephardic people. There's in all of these works that very strong element of sadness and also element of hope, whether it is a sadness for the lost love or a lost country that you don't have anymore and you are forced to travel, and also hope that you will regain either a lost love or a new love or a new country. So there's that element that it's very emotional. And the other thing, his storytelling the way he describes about this woman, about the travel, you can really feel it as we play and as we have performed. We mentioned we played it at Ravinia for the world premiere. It does not feel so long because it has this continuous progression of travel. There is a musical journey that starts with that opening, with that plea that is joined by a violin that evolves, then the guitar comes in, then it goes into very hopeful section, then the sadness again and again, it comes back with the hope. So it doesn't feel like 16 minutes when you play it. And that introduction features very strong strumming on the guitar, which is a motif that comes back throughout mm-hmm. the piece, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. He uses quite a bit of string because Carlos is a guitarist himself, so he likes to employ guitar with many different effects. Let's hear some excerpts from Plagari y Canto by Carlos Rafael Rivera, performed for us by the Cavatino duo, and they're joined by Desiree Rustrat violin. <laughs> Thank you. 
We've heard excerpts from a piece by Carlos Rafael Rivera, who was born in 1970, excerpts from a piece called Plagari y Canto and performed by the Cavatina duo. That's Eugenia Molinaire, flute, and Dennis Azabagage, guitar, and they were joined by a member of the Lincoln Trio, Desiree Rustrat, violin. The Lincoln Trio also appears on quite a few CD records. And this is a podcast featuring an album on CD called Sephardic Journey, featuring the Cavatina duo, and we're talking with Eugenia and Dennis who are the principals of the Cavatina Duo. And all CD recordings are available for purchase on their label and their website, cdrecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E. And this is a really wonderful album that features all world premiere recordings, four of them commissioned by the Cavatina Duo through CD Records. The next piece is by David Leisner, born in 1953, Love Dreams of the Exile. Tell us a bit about this wonderful composition. David Leisner is another composer with whom we've collaborated, and that was our first record for CD called Acrobats, where we featured all of his works for flute and guitar. And as we were thinking of who to commission, David came to mind because he has written some other quintets, guitar plus a string quartet. So we asked him to do a piece for flute, guitar, and string quartet. He was delighted. We love how he writes, and we were really happy to collaborate with the Avalon String Quartet. And that came about through close collaboration with Jim, whom we asked, who should we work with? The Avalon String Quartet made their CD debut album last year, a disc titled Illuminations, uh, named after work by Chicago composer Stacy Garrop, with whom CD Records has done much work. I was thinking about the title of the piece, which is Love Dreams of the exile. So it again reflects this spirit of the people who are in the exile and who have their dreams, dreams of love, love for dear people who they perhaps even lost family or the country itself. The titles are, the first movement it's called Yoboli, which means I flew. Second one is Suschiko Paramor, which means you are too young for love. And the third one is Babushkate Otramor, which means go away and look for another love. So love is a main theme for this piece. In his program note, Leisner describes this as a stream of consciousness meditation on these Sephardic themes. And I think it's particularly interesting, the second movement, how many different forms the initial melody goes through. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? When he employs these different rhythms, when he goes and makes it very jagged, five eights or six eights or three four or two four, so it feels very edgy. It's intersected with sections of just flute and guitar playing along. Some themes and in the middle section when he says, I want to convey a wedding ambience, and then he has a string quartet play like very far away, like if you would be approaching a village and coming to a wedding. And then it comes back to that section again from the beginning and ties it up in that circular form where it again feels very jagged. But yeah, lots of contrasts in this second movement. Well, let's hear a portion of the second movement of Love, Dreams of the Exile by David Leisner, performed by the Cavatina Duo, joined by the Avalon String Quartet.
We've just heard music from a piece called Love Dreams of the Exile from the Second Movement, music by David Leisner, who was born in 1953, a performance by the Cavatina duo joined by the Avalon String Quartet. The fifth composition on this album on Sadie Records, album number 163, called Sephardic Journey, is by Clarice Assad, who was born in 1978. It's called Sephardic Suite. Uh, Tell us a bit about this one. Clarice is another composer that we have collaborated before, and she's also a daughter of Sergio Assad, who was one of the people who inspired us to look in our backgrounds. So there's that connection there as well. Wonderful composer and also thrilled that we've asked her to do this combination of string quartet, flute, and guitar. And each composer, they all bring their own flavor into the music, even if the starting point is the folk tunes. And very often you can hear in Clarice's writing some elements of jazz because she performs herself in a jazz genre. Also some contemporary elements, not too many of them, but also because of her Brazilian background where in Brazil, guitar, it's not considered classical or popular. It's just guitar. So it melts. So there's no distinction between, oh, this is purely classical, this is popular. And you can feel this in her music, how this influence is really melt so nicely. She has a very interesting thing with performance in the third movement when she asks from all of us to do percussions. So we have to slap ourselves on our thighs and clap with our hands. And stomp with your feet. And stomp with your feet. So it was really funny when we were recording this, how we were going about it, and we had quite a laugh. What is interesting to me, for example, her inspiration about the third movement, she says the third and final movement is a humorous depiction of a couple. Upon hearing the song, I visualized a bickering old couple, founders of a vivacious and vociferous family who enjoy gathering around the house a little too often. They contribute to somewhat chaotic, albeit party atmosphere, etc. So she writes a little bit more, but I was just sometimes thinking, you know, if she's projecting something in the future and she's thinking a little bit about Cavatina duo who's <laughs> bickering and, <laughs> and, you know, and having this sort of atmosphere in the house. But it all comes to a very nice end when she says everybody becomes very happy at the end of the movement. I don't know, maybe it's my personal digression to it, but it's certainly unbelievable fun to play this piece and always to play music by Clarice. Well, Ohanya and Dennis are married, but you you guys have never been known to bicker at all, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Never. That's what I thought. Who says that? What word is that? Never heard of that. Well, we have to hear the ending to this movement. It's the third movement to the Sephardic Suite by Clarice Assad, performed by the Cavatina Duo, joined by the Avalon String Quartet. Speaking of percussion effects in this piece, she also does some interesting things with the guitar in the first movement. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? In the first movement, she uses this drone rhythm. 
that uh, guitar does, and it's sort of like a percussion section of a Middle Eastern group on which melody comes in first with the flute, then with the string quartet. And she wrote some challenging things for Oheni on the. I on wanted the flute. to mention that when we commissioned her to write this piece, she was at that time doing a residency in Doha of all places in the world, in the Middle East. And she, of course, being there and knowing that there are Sephardic Jews there and the influence they got while they went to this country, she just got inspired by the local music as well as what we were telling her about the melodies she could use. Because when we chose the music that they could choose, we just told them, you are free to choose any of these, but be in contact with each other so that you don't use the same melodies. And when she told us what she was going to use, she told us she was in Doha and she felt inspired by the music there. And then you can hear so much. She uses the alto flute in the first movement and what uh, Jim was mentioning about the guitar being almost like a tambourine effect. She uses the alto flute like a Middle Eastern flute. She makes me play... (laughs) So many notes, and the effect is really interesting. And I was challenged to do that. My wrist paid the consequences a little bit, but I was very happy. I think it's a fantastic piece. Let's hear the first movement from Sephardic Suite, performed on this album, Sephardic Journey by the Cavatina Duo, joined by the Avalon String Quartet.
We've heard the first movement of the Sephardic Suite by Clarice Assad, a world premiere recording on this album, Sephardic Journey, performed by the Cavatina duo, and they were joined by the Avalon String Quartet. As we've heard in the program, you premiered these works uh, on the album Sephardic Journey at Ravinia, which is the summer home of the Chicago Symphony and lots of other music, a summer festival just north of Chicago. Uh, what was it like premiering uh, such a personal project? It was a pleasure. We were so happy, first of all, because we had almost a full house, which is always great to see, and all but one composer came to the premiere. Alan, unfortunately, couldn't be here, Alan Tomas. He had some family issues that didn't allow him to come, but all the other composers were here, and it was fantastic, first, because they came to our run through the pieces before the performance, and we were able, for the first time, to play for them <laughs> directly, you know? Not the case with Carlos. Carlos was here during the recording, and he also came to the rehearsal, and David also came to the recording, but Clarice wasn't here at all, and Joe Williams wasn't either. And it was just wonderful to be able to finally, it's almost like giving birth, you know, to <laughs> the moment has arrived, let's see what the audience respond to this, and the audience liked it. So we were very happy. You got a good response, and the composers uh, were happy? Yes, yes, they were. Since you mentioned that, do you want to talk a little bit about what it was like working with the composers, specifically Carlos and David, being at the recording sessions for you? It's a great help. The more people you have helping you with the recording, the better it is. Carlos also in the rehearsals prior to recording helped quite a bit, putting the piece together, pointing us to things we need to pay attention. When you see the score, one of the main objectives of a performer is to try to figure out what composer wants. But there's always limitation to how much composer can actually convey on the score. So it's always great to have a composer in person telling you exactly what they need with the specific part. With David Leisner, when he was here, I felt it made a huge difference because his piece is, in a sense, more transparent. There's not heavy orchestration. It's not very dense. So he was asking for certain things during the session in the studio, and we kept that and performed in the same way at a concert. Alan Thomas, although American, he's based in London, he actually played by Skype at the session for his piece. What was that like, trying to make that work? Well, you know, use of technology is just whether the person is there behind the booth talking to us via Skype or being in person. It didn't matter to us. What mattered to us is simply having that feedback. I mentioned before, having a great producer, having an engineer, having a composer there, there are all the feedbacks that feed into the final form of the piece. So input by a composer, it's great. And I asked Clarice also if she could be there for the session as well to be via Skype, but she was actually recording that very same day in San Francisco with her father, so she couldn't join us. Actually, for me as the producer, it was particularly, I've had experience working with composers, some are easier to work with than others, and these composers were very easy to work with. And when I would make a suggestion, it's interesting, I always find how everybody listens differently. So there'd be things the composers would hear, obviously knowing what they intended their piece to sound like that I would never have thought to have mentioned in the session. But there were things I would hear that totally would have gone right by them, and they were like, oh yeah, thank you for mentioning that. So it's really wonderful when you can collaborate that way. And even prior to recording session, through the composing process, we would have them submit drafts and we would listen on the MIDI recording that was available, which helps to give us the sense of the piece, which direction it goes and the form. Especially we were involved with Carlos Rivera's piece. We collaborated with him the most in that process. That's exactly what is exciting about this collaborative process where you can go back and forth with the composers. And when you mentioned some composers are easier to work with than others, I think as much as we have to listen for the composer's inputs and their ideas of how the piece should be played and what they want to be, some composers are eager to hear our input. And so what do you think? Is this going to work? Is it, you know, how does this shape? So I think the more people put their minds together on something, the end result is better. One question we have been asking in these podcasts is what makes the Chicago music scene unique for you? You. You are the most unique thing in this city. There is nothing like Sadie. 
to be in a city where you have Chicago Symphony Orchestra, where you have Lyric Opera, where you have Harris Theater, where you have Ravinia, where you have so many... Grand Park. You know, Grand Park. You have so much going on. Chicago Sinfonietta. You have so much music, so much culture available. But what is unique for us, what keeps us in Chicago would be opportunity to record for you, opportunity to have our ideas brought to light through a label that stands so fervently behind each of their endeavor. I have to say something, although it looks a little cliche and like I am kind of kissing your face, but (laughs) when we read this question, I said this city is unique for two things, in my opinion. There are great orchestras in other cities too. There are a lot of things in other cities, but this city has CD and has WFMT. True. And that really makes a big difference. True. I said that, and I'm being honest. If you know me, you know one thing I have is really honest. I say what I think. For us as performers, as recording musicians, having the record company and having the radio station here that we have the opportunity to play live very often, and our music is being played, and so many great musicians that this city has. It's a wonderful combination. That makes Chicago unique. Well, I remember this article that you've written for Musical America, Steve, and when you were talking about how much actually the, the classical music is played and what the radios are doing, it seems that the radio is now a main platform for hearing classical music as we all face this problem of decline sales in the CDs and so on. But it's not about the sales, it's about creating the music and having a medium to put it out. For those of you who came across this podcast at random, Sadie Records is based in Chicago. It's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, Sadie Records, and you can access the whole catalog online at sadierecords.org. WFMT, which Ohanya was very nice to refer to, is a radio station in Chicago that has been on the air since 1951, plays a lot of classical music and some folk music on Saturday night, and you can stream us at WFMT.com. And both uh, CD and WFMT are not-for-profit organizations. In fact, at the CD uh, Gala last year, 2015, we inaugurated our Musical Partner Award, and the first award went to WFMT because both organizations really have a mission exclusively for CD, and it's a big part of the mission of WFMT to promote local Chicago artists, FMT through airplay and recording concerts uh, all over town and having concerts from their own studio, and CD from the recordings, which we use not only to document the work of these great Chicago musicians and composers, but also to promote their careers. Earlier, we talked about how four of the works on this album, Sephardic Journey, were commissioned through CD Records, and that is one way to support music through CD. Of course, we also accept donations for our general purpose of recording and promoting these wonderful Chicago composers and musicians. And you can go to the Sadie Records website, and there's a donate button right there, as is the case on the WFMT website as well. And should we wrap up by asking the Cavatina duo what upcoming projects you have, what plans, either recording or performance? We want to do a concerto commission. Actually, we would like to do two concerto commissions and to collaborate with a local orchestra here in Chicago, and we are working on that. Are there currently any concertos for flute and guitar? Yes, there are. We have one that was written for us in 2010 by Alan Thomas, and Augusta Red Thomas, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, she did write a concerto for flute, guitar, and chamber orchestra. And we also performed the uh, Danson Number no. 3 by Arturo Marquez. He composed Danton Number no. 3 for flute, guitar, and chamber orchestra, and we played it at the Harris Theater with the Chicago Sinfonietta in 2012. Are there any other performances involving the repertoire <coughs> of Sephardic Journey coming up? Yes. Next season, we are starting the season in September playing for the Soiree of Sedi. Oh. We will be playing one of the trios, one movement. Then we are going with Desiree David. We are going to be playing with them in different states, and we are going to be all around the U.S. We are going to play first in South Dakota, then in January and in February and in March, we are going to be playing in Florida, we're going to play in Puerto Rico, we're going to play festival in Bermuda, and we are going to play also in Texas, so all around. Since you mentioned the Sadie Records Gala, I'll do a save the date here. It is going to be September 11th of this year, 2016, at Venue 610, home of the Spurtis Institute 
And what will be performed from Sephardic Journey will be the very first track on the album, the first movement of Alan Thomas's Trio Sephardi. And the other performer on the concert will be violinist Jennifer Coe. Well, thank you very much for listening to this podcast from CD Records. We've been talking with the Cavatina duo, and that's uh, Ohenia Molinaire flute, and Dennis has a baggage guitar. They were joined on this album, and it's a wonderful album with five compositions, all world premiere recordings, four of them commissioned by the Cavatina duo through CD Records. So, Ohenia and Dennis, thank you very much for joining us. And Jim Ginsberg, the president of CD Records, our engineer is Bill Malone, and I'm Steve Robinson. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks.